Hello, true crime fans. This is Tony Hart, and I am starting a new podcast called Killers. Killers everywhere. Murderers, mass murderers, a multimillionaire alleged serial killer, and a man who was run out of town by vigilantes before he could become a shooter. That's my family. And we're wasps. Wealthy wasps. When the pandemic hit, I posted a podcast of short stories called Love from New York. Then I wanted to try stories that were more than one episode each. So I made a list of possible family stories. I looked at the list and I said, They're all killers. Sometimes you need to see the truth right in front of you. The list of my family stories was a list of people who had killed other people. I sat there staring at the words on the screen. How could this be? Was I in such deep denial I had ignored the dumpster fire of lethal violence I grew up in? And if I had ignored that, what else was out there? Yes, I do have an uncle who ran black ops in the CIA. And there was the great-great-great-great-grandfather who was a marquis living at Versailles, who met his deserved demise on the blade of the guillotine. Then there were the iron mining companies my family founded that, when confronted with striking workers, shot them. And then there were my friends, the motorcycle gang, whose party I escaped as the Molotov cocktails flew over my head, and the boyfriend, who started a terrorist cult called Weatherman, who conned a bunch of rich white kids into blowing themselves up. I thought, I can't make podcasts out of these stories. I don't even want to admit what I came from. But then I thought, Wait a minute. These are brutal times. People might like these stories. And so I picked the top six psychos I have known. And I'm going to introduce them to you and tell you a little bit about who they were and what they did. Then I would like it if you would let me know which story you like best. Because I want to write a book. With six stories to tell, I split my introduction to killers, killers everywhere into two parts with three psychos each. Okay, here goes. Killer number one. The top killer in my family has to be the serial killer or alleged 
serial killer. This person is a woman who was adopted by one of the wealthiest families in Minnesota. Yes, a multimillionaire robber baron family produced a daughter who is an alleged serial killer. You will love this story. Lawyers tell me that I must use the word alleged because this woman has never been convicted of murder. The story takes place in a mansion in Duluth, Minnesota, named Glen Sheen. Glen Sheen was built to celebrate the astonishing Gilded Age wealth of a man named Chester Congdon, a robber baron who shot from rags to riches in the Minnesota iron mines. America's Industrial Revolution began in the 1880s, and it was built on steel. Iron, heated with carbon, produces steel, and Minnesota had the best iron ore in America. Its capitalists grew rich and built huge mansions. Glensheen is a monument to the extreme wealth of the Gilded Age, and it became the scene of the most notorious multiple murder in Minnesota history. But where exactly did the extreme wealth of the Gilded Age come from? From the great robber barons. And how exactly did they get that wealth? by developing America's industrial strength on the broken backs of the working poor. I was shocked to discover that when workers in the iron mines my family had opened tried to strike, they were simply shot. That was how the robber baron fortunes were made, with brutal cruelty. I believe any talk about the Gilded Age needs to reveal how that age got so gilded. Well, back to Duluth. Chester Congdon raised six children in the splendor of Glen Sheen. His youngest daughter, Elizabeth, did not marry, and she inherited the stately home. Elizabeth Congdon had everything she could possibly want in this world, except a family of her own. In 1932, when she was 38 years old, Elizabeth adopted a baby girl she named Marjorie. It is believed that Marjorie was born a psychopath. Into the magnificence of Glen Sheen, Elizabeth brought an angry child with violent tendencies. Marjorie was aggressive at a young age. As soon as she could walk, she is said to have run at Elizabeth and pounded her with her little fists. In order to reduce household hostilities, Elizabeth gave Marjorie everything she wanted. 
It was in the luxury of Glen Sheen that Marjorie developed her alleged criminal skills. Compulsive lying, forgery, fraud, theft, arson, the use of poison, and assault and battery. Elizabeth was aware that Marjorie was becoming a criminal, but she refused to allow the police to arrest her adopted daughter. She could not bear the idea of bringing shame to the family, and she felt it was her duty to help Marjorie. The very child Elizabeth hoped would become her family, in fact, became, allegedly, her murderer. I know this story personally because my mother and I lived in Duluth with her parents during World War II when my father was in the Army. I am related to Elizabeth by marriage, not by blood. My grandmother had grown up as best friends with Elizabeth because their fathers were business partners, and grandmother's brother was married to Elizabeth's sister. When mother and grandmother went to Glensheen for high tea, they took me along. My child's eyes were dazzled by the beauty of Glensheen. I visited Glensheen between the ages of three and five or six. Marjorie is ten years older than I am, and I never once saw Marjorie. My cousins used to tell me stories about her, how she stole money from Elizabeth's purse, how she tried to poison her own horse, how she grew angry when a department store refused to let her charge something, so she went into the basement and set the store on fire. I was so curious about Marjorie. I used to pretend to wander around the house while I was secretly trying to find her. But I never did. In the summer of 1977, I learned that Elizabeth Congdon and her nurse had been murdered. Everyone blamed Marjorie. She was tried for murder and acquitted. I remember Elizabeth as a lovely, warm woman. Her murder troubled me. When something terrible happens to someone you knew as a kid, it hangs over your head. It won't go away. So when the COVID pandemic hit and I had to stop working, I decided it was time to look into Elizabeth's murder. I read all the books I could find, and I haunted the internet to track down information. I created a timeline for Marjorie. When was she at college? When was she married? And I began to insert into the timeline the list of her crimes. I was stunned at the sheer quantity of criminal activity Marjorie Congdon got away with. There must be hundreds of police reports and complaints. The Congdon family was so powerful 
the police could not make arrests and the district attorneys would not prosecute. There must have been thousands of bad checks, all covered by Elizabeth. There were defaulted loans to the tune of millions of dollars, all paid by Elizabeth. Marjorie is alleged to have been involved in five murders. The police can't prove a single murder. Marjorie Congdon is a hard, cold predator. The exquisite mansion called Glensheen has produced one of the most brilliant female criminals in American history. Marjorie is still alive, and I am told by lawyers that I must proceed with caution in telling her story. I will be careful. However, there is another story behind the story of Elizabeth's murder, and that is the story of the iron mines that made the family so fabulously wealthy. I will begin by telling that part of the story, the backstory. I believe in telling the entire story, not just the criminal event itself. This larger story is a saga of my family and the Congdons, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller, and the extraordinary power and criminality of the robber barons of the Gilded Age. If you think Marjorie committed crimes, wait until you hear what the robber barons did. Okay, story number two. This story is called The Last Great American Train Robbery. The title they gave to the deadly debacle perpetrated by the mass murderers in my family, my great-uncles, the three Dotremo brothers. The Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, and it moved passengers, freight, and valuables from coast to coast. Those valuables included payroll, gold, and cash. Where you had trains carrying valuables, you had train robbers who thought of the trains as banks on wheels, but with better escape routes. This crime was pure Old West, an age that made outlaw folk heroes out of the Dalton brothers, Jesse James, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, all of whom robbed trains as well as banks. The railroads met the threat by having a special car on each train that was called the mail car. The mail car was locked, it held a safe, and it had an armed guard. 
The Dotromo brothers were named Ray and Roy, who were twins, and their younger brother, Hugh. Ray was the ringleader. He had worked as a wobbly, a labor union organizer. But Ray decided he didn't want to wait for communism to get his share of the pie. So on October 11th, 1923, outside of Ashland, Oregon, the three brothers blew up the Southern Pacific Railroad train number 13, the train known as the Gold Special. Ray had heard that the Gold Special was carrying $5 million worth of gold. The train had to slow down as it passed through a tunnel in the Siskiyou Mountains of Oregon. And the plan was that the three would jump on the first car of the slowed train, dynamite the mail car door open, and hold shotguns on the guard until he forfeited the gold in the safe. Then they would jump into their getaway car, which they had cleverly hidden in the nearby woods, and make their escape. As they drove their getaway car to the scene of the crime, they hit a cow. Yes, a cow. And demolished the automobile. Undaunted, they waited by the tunnel for the gold special to slow down. Then they jumped onto the train and ordered the engine crew to stop. When they told the mail clerk to open the mail car door, he refused. So the Dotromo brothers blasted open the mail car. Using so much dynamite, they blew the mail car and its safe to bits, killing the guard. Since they had destroyed the gold they had come for, they didn't know what to do next. So, hey, they had guns. They didn't want to be identified. They brutally and unnecessarily shot in cold blood and killed the three members of the train crew. Then they ran off into the woods and disappeared. It was called a Siskiyou Massacre. The authorities were furious, and they unleashed what is said to have been the most intense international manhunt ever. They offered a reward of a quarter of a million dollars, unheard of in those days. They enlisted thousands of people, local and state police, National Guard, postal inspectors everywhere. They sent out 2,265,000 wanted posters, which were plastered on every post office wall in America. It worked. It took four years. But because of the wanted posters, the three criminals, my great uncles, were finally found, tried, and given life sentences. The real kicker? There was no gold 
on that train. All right, story number three. This is the tough one for me to tell. It's the story of the family member whose potentially lethal violence was stopped before he could fire a shot. My own father. My father was a doctor who was horribly mentally ill. So violent, the people in our Minnesota hometown believed he would become a shooter. So they organized a kind of community vigilante group, a nonviolent one, to run my father out of town. They boycotted his medical practice and destroyed the home he was building. After World War II, small Midwestern towns were desperate for doctors. To force a doctor to leave meant that they feared the worst. It took them three years. My father refused to leave town. He thought he was standing up for himself. He would not give in. My father fought with everyone he considered an authority figure, including our landlords. So we moved constantly from house to apartment to summer cabin to motel to empty farmhouse out on Highway 61. Then there was nowhere else to go. We were broke and homeless. My father took a job as a physician on an army hospital base in Iowa, and I grew up in brick barracks. We lived on the base for seven years until my mother died. My father had never liked me. I have a brother, and all my life I had heard my father say, The boy is always more important than the girl. My mother had been my protection, and now my protection was gone. I was 14 years old and terrified. My father moved right in on me, announcing that he would refuse to give me money for college and refused to let me drive a car in Iowa. He told me I was fat, and he put me on amphetamines. He had taken amphetamines for years. He knew how dangerous they are. I thought my life was over, but then I was saved. My mother's mother died and left me a small amount of money. I took the money and ran. I barreled through college. I was on amphetamines, remember? And moved to New York where my mother's sister took me in. I was desperate to kick the drugs my father had hooked me on, and I knew my aunt would help me see a psychiatrist. I am the only person in America who ever ran away to New York City to get off drugs. I went to graduate school, got a job, and settled into life in Greenwich Village. 
but I was so angry with my father. I was feral. I was lucky a dear friend gave me her cheap apartment in the village. Greenwich Village will put up with anything. My shrink got me off drugs, but I didn't know the story of being run out of town. It was shameful and a deep family secret, and I had been too young to understand. It wasn't until 2007 that I finally learned the truth. My father's sister was dying, and in our long phone calls, my darling Aunt Mabel told me the whole story. It was a story of constant violence. As a child of a man like this, your life is chaos. The threat of violence hangs over you every day. You never know when it will hit, and you don't know what its triggers are, so there's no ability to plan a life and no way to escape. You live your life in silence, and you watch all the time. When my mother wasn't present, my father often screamed at me, and the screams were so desperate and so brutal, I could hear his mental illness. But because my mother and I had lived with her parents when my father was in the army, I knew what a normal family was. As a kid, all I could do was hold on. But I knew I would grow up and tell this story. I knew I would get revenge. All I had to do was tell the truth, which I have just done. Thank you for listening to this story. You can't imagine how much it means to me. Well, this has been my introduction part one to my podcast, Killers, Killers Everywhere. Introduction part two will continue the list of people in my family and amongst my friends who have killed. My plan is to find out which of these stories work for true crime fans and turn those stories into books. I would love it if you would find it in your heart to tell me which story you like the best. You can let me know at my email address. TonyHeartNY at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>